Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of Inside U Miami Medicine. Today, I'm joined by two of the most outstanding faculty members at the Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine, Dr. Gary Agarwal, Associate Dean for Curriculum, Dr. Amr Despande, the Associate Dean for Medical Education and Administration. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation because you are responsible and to a large extent are the principal architects of our new curriculum, NextGenMD. But before we delve into the substance of this exciting new <laughs> novel curriculum, excuse me if I, could, if I can contain myself, um, let's talk a little bit about yourselves and uh, your journey and how it is that you became such leading educators at the Miller School of Medicine. Gary, let's start with you. Well, we, I think, both credit the University of Miami. We were both proud graduates. Um, at that time, we were in... And what class did you... I was in the class of 2000. Okay. And we were both in the six-year uh, program. So we did two years of For college. very, very smart yeah. people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I think I was 18 when I started medical school. How old were you? Yeah. And, uh, Not legal to do the things that uh, <laughs> happened after, after tests. Wow. That's right. That's wow. right. So we were, we're proud graduates. I did my training up north uh, elsewhere and then came back as faculty. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm, a, depending on how you calculate it, a quintuple cane, undergrad, med school, yeah. residency, fellowship, and how could I not stay on faculty? Uh, the cane um, for life. Cane for life. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, class 2002, so a couple of years. Uh, I look older, but she looks so young, but two years, uh, two years behind uh, Gary. So I think, I, you know, the commitment to how great the school was and how my mentors, um, both in my specialty, I'm a gastroenterologist in my specialty, but also in, um, in education or really what drew me to how could I merge those two things in my two interests, both in GI and in education. And I was so well fostered here that it was a natural, a natural segue into faculty. Okay, oh, great, great. And and how did you get interested in, uh, in medical, edu education? medical education? It was actually my chief year. Actually, I was going to be a gastroenterologist. Amr knows this story. <laughs> yeah, okay. And um, was planning on doing fellowship, and then I did my chief year, and then it was just struck me that um, having all of these learners and developing curricula, you could actually have like a deep impact, a multiplier effect mm -hmm. in a way on patients, much more so than my own patients. Mm -hmm. If you can really foster clinicians who are um, all grounded, mm -hmm. no matter you know, and I really liked undergraduate medical education. I suddenly realized that students, more so than my internal medicine residents, were undifferentiated. Mm -hmm. They were like little stem cells that were going to be orthopedists. Yeah, very important stem cells. Right, right, okay. exactly. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that concept of being able to be there for that foundational part of their training. Awesome, awesome, yeah. awesome. So let's talk about medical education. So you graduated in 2000 and you're in 2002, so I suspect that the approach to medical education was quite different mm -hmm. compared to what we have today. Yes. Tell me a little bit about what got you excited about adopting a new approach to medical education. Why the change? But I think for me, you know, um, as you go through uh, training, I was really interested in GI training at first and in GME and one of my education mentors from here, mm -hmm. um, Mark mm -hmm. O'Connell said, you're gonna do one thing, pick UME or GME. And I listened to him on a lot of things, uh -huh. but not in that. And mm -hmm. I ended up doing a lot of stuff both in the GME and the UME world. And mm -hmm. as, you, as, you, as you're able to straddle both, you see some of the true value in how, the way that we were trained, mm -hmm. but also in ways that we know that how we can better inform residencies and how can we create better medical students, medical student graduates, to be better prepared for residency and their careers thereafter. And so I started taking interest in kind of the history of how did we get to where we were 
and not for the not to bore anyone in this in this conversation, but from the the Flexner report from 110 years ago, and how do we get to the model that many of us trained, where we sat in the classroom, memorized volumes of information for two years and forgot it maybe a week later, right. and then go into two years of living in a very hospital-based setting, right. um, and then going out into the world, and, and that prepared us, and I think we're all proud of how we came out, but True. what are the opportunities to get better, and how can we learn not True. only from our, our experiences, but from what the, what the science has told us about sure. how do adults sure. or young adults learn, and how can we leverage that pedagogy to be able to deliver, deliver education better? Okay, all right. Yeah, great, I mean, great. Our, our experience, in our second year of medical school, we were sitting in an auditorium. In this second year of medical school, Next Gen, they are operating, they are delivering babies, they are talking right. to families, right? So that's an incredible thing so early in their education. I love the fact that it's early clinical experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think what I also really just compare to what we experienced, we experienced a very traditional model of being doctors. And the healthcare system is completely different now, right? We're talking 22 years later for me. And when you came on as dean, I remember you had this tagline of transformational leaders in medicine. This curriculum really could allow them to do that because it's not just the traditional medical curriculum. They have mm -hmm. scholarly pathways. They have dual degrees. They have ways to become transdisciplinary mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. bring to the practice of medicine this completely different mindset, another discipline, a different skill set, right? Which is, I think, a, you know, earth shattering, really, right? Yeah, that, this is a, that, that's a great segue um, to talking about the real curriculum. But, but before we quite get there, mm -hmm. most medical schools have been making incremental changes. And they call that curricular improvement, curricular reform, and so mm -hmm. forth. But, but you took a radical approach. You know? Why this radical change? And then we can talk about mm -hmm. how, you know, this, this transformation. Yeah, and I think you know our school has a has a history of trying to um, trying to make changes ahead of the curve, if you will, in the early two thousands. Mm -hmm. um, like many schools did, get, getting more to like the organ system based modules rather than the more historical kind of biochem for an hour, histology for an hour kind of college way of doing things. The academic societies, the MD and PH program being the biggest in the country about fifteen mm -hmm. years ago. So we've done these incremental changes, as you said. But several years ago, when Lanny Gardner was um, was the interim dean, mm -hmm. he really came to a group of us and said. We want you to take this opportunity to think outside the box. Pretend right. there are no limitations. Mm -hmm. Pretend there are no, no financial restrictions, uh, logistical restrictions. How can we learn from what we know about education, what we know about medicine, mm -hmm. and create the best possible curriculum? And really empowered us mm -hmm. to at least have the intellectual exercise. At the time, we mm -hmm. didn't know we'd be able to pull it off, but at least we could go through the exercise. And so that was really exciting for us now, I guess, five, mm -hmm. five years ago, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and how far we've come since then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, yeah, it's five years ago, but... but getting there was quite a formidable undertaking. Tell me a little bit about that, the challenges. How, how did you actually make that sausage? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. We started, we started with a task force. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to chair a task force mm -hmm. back in 2017 and 2018. We tried to bring together um, people who were really involved in education mm -hmm. at the medical school. We mm -hmm. also had people from the business school and the nursing school. Mm -hmm. We had residents. We had mm -hmm. students and staff, because we really wanted to get a full 360 view of what is the best so, way. So how many people in that task force? About 25 people wow. on this original task force. Wow. And that original goal was, what are some of the basic tenets of what we want to accomplish? Okay. We had several meetings okay. and, and like kind of thought meetings about mm -hmm. what are the basic principles. And we gave everyone assignments. You know, one of the things that I think I'm really proud of is there's a lot of ways you can wax philosophical about how things should be. Mm -hmm. But just like we tell every one of our learners how to take an evidence-based approach to why they're going to do therapy X or procedure Y, mm -hmm. we said before we change from 
this to whatever else is there. What is the data? What are the data behind that? Mm -hmm. So we spoke to, we, we recently had made a spreadsheet um, of about 40 schools, both in the U.S. and, and wow. other places in North America, as well as in wow. Europe um, and Asians, and to learn from them. And so, sure. so when you ask, like, you know, our curriculum, it's 5% an idea from that school and 10% an idea from this school. And so what we really want to say is what is the evidence? What does it show that why are we doing what we're doing so we can defend it? Um, mm -hmm. Certainly at the minimum to show non-inferiority, but optimally um, to show how it can be better. So really coming up with what we at the time had these six major pillars. Um, for example, like what is the right substrate of what do you really want to start with? You sure. mentioned making the sausage, right? Like what's sure. that right substrate? How can you truly, everyone talks about the three pillars of, of, of academic health systems, but how can education truly have the same length of a leg, if you will, of the clinical mm -hmm. and research operations? Um, and, and how do you create the financial structure and the infrastructure to do that? And how can sure. you, how can you get people, you know, one of our biggest challenges is, listen, I, I have recently won three national awards in my specialty mm -hmm. because of how good I teach blank subject. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this for 30 years. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with what we're doing? And right. so how do you have that conversation of nothing's wrong with what we're doing, right. but how can we make it better? And how can exactly. we engage all of our stakeholders exactly. to believe mm -hmm. in rowing in the same direction? So how do you embrace change? Mm -hmm. and, and I imagine that it's not easy to convince someone who's been teaching for 30 years uh, who's been getting prizes that they need to make any yeah. kind of um, change for their approach. Right? Well, I feel there's a couple like that, but I got to tell you that what was really inspiring to me is how many people who have done something so well for so long, mm -hmm. completely embraced it. And they said, you know what? Yeah. I know this, but this, what I'm doing now is easy. Challenge me, like mm -hmm. tell me. And, and as we went through this evidence-based approach sure. of, oh, this seems like it does work in other places. Mm -hmm. I think we could implement this. I was really proud of how many people got on board. Of course, you're always gonna have the stragglers who kind of don't feel like you're moving that direction. We're very sure. um, grateful for their opinions and, 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 uh, and approaches, but um, really, you know, even some of our best teachers mm -hmm. uh, completely embrace the opportunity to make things better. Great, great. So, and along the journey, 25 members in the task force, but I imagine many more subcommittees. I remember yes. there was a retreat. Um, and and mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that and then what came out of that. Yeah, so, you know, we're actually writing a paper right now based upon the Cotter change, mm -hmm. uh, you know, management um, structure. So we were actually reflecting on everything that happened back then. It actually follows this Cotter framework of change. Mm -hmm. um, and John Cotter, who's a um, professor at Harvard Business School, sure. and he, there was this um, basic element of creating a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. And we created a sense of urgency mm -hmm. on the fact that we hadn't renewed the curriculum, completely upended thing uh, for a long period of time. We created a vision, and that was in this retreat that we had where we had a large number of folks come mm -hmm. together and really talk about the things that made them proud to be faculty at the school. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes them get out of bed in the morning and come sure. to work? Mm -hmm. And the words that they were using ended up being crafted into this one statement, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we, Which you know very well. <laughs> no, no, refresh my memory. <laughs> we want to empower to transform and inspire to serve. And it was a beautiful statement, but it sort of became the single focal point for everything that we were doing after that, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we had to build a coalition, and that's what you're talking about, it's like getting the faculty on board, talking about the vision, talking about what we wanted to do, giving the financial support for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now we're in this phase right now of consolidating early wins. Sure. So now we have to get out to everybody how successful it's been, despite yeah. a pandemic, yeah. despite yeah. everything else, right? So that's where we're, we are. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm going to carry you through the process. So, yeah. so this is fantastic. So now you've the task force is in place. You've had your retreat. You have your compass, your north star, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so 
what did you come up with? What, what did this new curriculum look like? So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the phases. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's a few key principles. And, 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 and highlight how it's different from sure. the old so, way we, tra yeah. we were trained. So the, so the old way, as I mentioned, this Flexner report, this 2 plus 2 model, mm -hmm. um, trying to disarticulate that. We now, you know, this, this model of you can't learn about how to take care of a patient who's short of breath until you have previously learned about the physiology of how one takes oxygen from the air and gets it, in, gets it into a, an organ, right? And so it has to be sequential. We now know that not only is that necessarily accurate, in fact, quite the opposite, that if you can learn those things simultaneously, while you're, it helps you consolidate knowing how that molecular or physiologic mm -hmm. process occurs mm -hmm. while you're seeing a patient and learning how to ask them a question mm -hmm. about their symptoms and how it correlates to a certain disease process and may lead to a certain treatment. And so, the, so this idea of early meaningful clinical experiences mm -hmm. and, the, and, and removing ourselves from the idea of, oh, you're too early to learn in the right. clinical environment. Right. You must have memorized an enzymatic pathway or an anatomic landmark before you can, before you can develop a relationship with a patient. Mm -hmm. So really developing early clinical experiences. Mm -hmm. And the other mm -hmm. major aspect mm -hmm. is understanding that the best way to, to, to learn material is not only in a clinically applicable way, but not by being told everything, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea of active learning, a flipped classroom model, how can you get together in small groups and make, the, make people struggle, right? The way that we learn mm -hmm. is by struggling through effortful a problem, learning. effortful learning, right? And so getting in small groups, working through problems, maybe right. you're completely off base, mm -hmm. but by the end, making sure you circle back with the mm -hmm. right kind of mm -hmm. answer and approach. So small groups of people learning mm -hmm. together in an active format and getting early clinical experiences were two of our major keys. And so how could Got we create it. the right faculty and systems okay. in place to allow that to happen? So, so we're changing the pedagogy, but we're also changing the length of time mm -hmm. that they're studying different things. So tell me about the phases now. So it's not the two yeah. plus two, it's no. the one, two, and three. That's right. Phase one is 14 months, but that actually includes two months of a summer in which mm -hmm. they can do scholarly work, capstone work. So essentially it's 12 months of them being with us. Uh, where they learn the foundation enough to be able to see patients in phase two. Okay. So that's about 12 months. And then they go off into phase two, which is now their clinical year. Mm -hmm. Again, 12 months, but again, delivered differently than what Amar and I experienced in medical school. Now we have four clerkships, but it's integrated clinical disciplines. So for example, we have ER to the OR. Mm -hmm. So our surgical colleagues are working with our anesthesia colleagues, are working right. with our emergency medicine colleagues right. to create a 12-week experience, but that mimics a lot of what patients experience, exactly. right? Exactly. It's not just this discipline in a silo. So we love that they're learning in that so way. So how did you think about that? You know, how, how I mean, it wasn't us. It was our, it was our faculty. It Good. was our, it was a team effort, mm -hmm. right? Um, we came together and there was a whole phase two team who came up with this plan. Yeah. And what I love about the clinical year in this curriculum, which is also very different from us, is the integration of foundational sciences, right? right? right. Where, where it makes the most sense. What does that mean? So I'm learning pharmacology while I'm prescribing that medication, right? I'm mm -hmm. learning about reproductive physiology while I'm taking care of a pregnant woman or, you know, whatever. So, so they're still getting lectures. Well, they're, they're getting some degree of lectures in the sense they're modules, there's mm -hmm. um, videos that our faculty have put together so that they can okay. independently learn during those clerkships. Okay. There's quizzes that they're taking to assess that knowledge, that type of thing. And, and I would also just say that, you know, our faculty were, were really kind of coming up with these ideas. Mm -hmm. But again, we're not asking them to come up from scratch. We said, search the literature, see right. what's working right. for people. Right. Right. And so, you know, we're proud of what we produced, but you know, not everything is individually ours. We, sure. And why should it be? Why should you have to reinvent the wheel? So we looked at different models 
of people. And there were challenges, right? We wanted to, at first, have a much more integrated clerkship. Mm -hmm. We talked to school after school, and they're like, that sounds great in theory. When you try to run it, it just at a school our size, it works for schools with 40 students Mm -hmm. at one hospital. It just doesn't work well. You can see a woman when she delivers and follow her baby for a year, right? There's challenges in the longitudinal. So so we tried to leverage what we thought was good with what we know could work and learn from and learn from others. And I think the other key piece that we wanted people to take away from that we had to talk talk a lot about this is we're not saying that foundational science is cut in half, right? Mm-hmm. So the easy maybe takeaway is you took two years of preclinical, and I like right. calling it preclerkship because everything's clinical from day right, one, right. but preclerkship time and making it to one year. We yes, we do have that one year or 14 months um, in total, but we're redistributing some of the stuff that used to be there in a much more relevant time, both in phase two, and we'll talk about a second in phase three. So across that, you know, what we, we used to do is you memorized a pathway or an mm-hmm. anatomic landmark. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. unless someone was 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 quizzing you on it to, to study for a test, yeah. you never learned exactly. it again, right. um, except in right. that environment. Right. So really trying to distribute that better across all three. Yeah. yeah. So. The other important thing I should say about phase two is this concept of the longitudinal clinical educator. Yeah. This is the mentor and coach that they met mm-hmm. in their first phase. Okay. Who's been working with them every week. So from day one. From day one. Okay. Who is their coach, their advisor, their mentor, their go-to person. Wow. And who's been training them on clinical skills. Okay. But that person doesn't disappear when they start clerkships. Right. That person they're meeting with every six weeks throughout clerkships. And I think that's really powerful because now they have mm. a place to reflect on what they're seeing, the patients that they're okay. seeing, their career plans. Um, and, you know, there's so much data about students losing their empathy in the mm. clinical year. Yes, yes, And yes, this, yes. This, this ability to reflect and then get feedback and hear what everybody's experiencing, mm. I think, is really powerful. So I, that's a very important part of phase two that we were never able to implement before. Um, and then phase three. So this is the part that we're very excited about. So now you have 17 months mm-hmm. where you have a lot of freedom and flexibility to get really grounded either in the clinical discipline that you're really interested okay. in pursuing, okay. the sub-internship and everything else that you need to do to get ready for that. But now also follow your dreams and passions in other areas, that mm-hmm. transdisciplinary thing we were talking about before. Yeah. So since phase one, everyone had to choose something, a scholarly mm-hmm. pathway of emphasis. So if they're interested in oncology or okay. women's health, whatever it is, or they chose a dual degree. So they're getting their MPH, their MBA, whatever it Got may it. be that they, so they're consolidating, getting a lot of that coursework done in phase three as well. So this is the part I'm also really excited about, okay. where I think UM leads is these opportunities for students to specialize in an area of interest. And if you look, if you look at the amount of time, you know, in the model that we used to have, you finish your clerkships in June of your mm-hmm. third year, mm-hmm. and in July, August, and half of September, you have to figure out what am I doing with my life? Right. Who's going to write me a letter? Right. How am I going to impress somebody? And how am I going to put together an application? And so two. everything is, and how am I going to go on an externship to impress somebody in another school? Mm-hmm. And so that was so compressed. And so now what you have is phase three starts in January. So you basically have tripled the amount of time to find your passion, to do your work, to get re- prepared for residency. Um, and so by rearranging the, mm-hmm. the months, we're really able to deliver a lot more of that personalized approach across a wider um, a, amount of time of course, to really give course. each student what they really seek from their particular experience. Of course. Now, that's when phase three is when they take integrated science courses. Yes. Yes. Tell me about that. What does that mean? How many of these do they take? And then how does yeah. that help? So they all have to take at least one. It's mm-hmm. four weeks. And this has been very exciting for us to find those collaborations with our mm-hmm. PhD faculty, the ones sure. that are embedded in, in this foundational sciences, and our clinicians in our departments, and for them working mm-hmm. together to mm-hmm. craft a four-week experience for students where mm-hmm. they can really see 
the connection between transplant medicine and immunology mm -hmm. as an example, right? So it may have been just theoretical in phase one, but now they're seeing the application yeah. of it in phase yeah. three or gross anatomy and surgery. So these types of courses where they can integrate the two, I think can be very powerful. All of us, I think, felt like, oh, I wish I could take anatomy now as a sure. fourth year medical sure. student, right? Okay. So this is their opportunity to do those kinds of things. And, and even across and we, professions, you know, like I think, uh, you know, we have one with clinical pharmacists teaching about their perspective and then going mm -hmm. into a clinic and seeing mm -hmm. how immunotherapy is actually delivered in, into a cancer patient um, or similarly pathology with, 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 with some of the cancer biology. So, so how can we, again, bring back not just there's 12 or 14 months of phase one, you never learn foundational science again. Right. How can you keep reintroducing it right. in a way that's mm -hmm. contextually relevant to them? Because sure. that's how they really are going to remember it. Okay. So if I'm interested in cardiology, for instance, I can take integrated science course in... Correct. Yeah. Correct. And then I'm seeing patients also. Yes. Right. So it's a combination of seeing patients with yeah. that particular foundational science discipline, maybe exactly. learning something about the electrical con conductivity of the heart, maybe exactly. you're actually going in and then, or maybe you're doing that and then going to the EP lab and seeing someone right. ablate a rhythm. Right. Um, so you can kind of see in real time how those things come together. I can memorize that that's yeah. the ECG change. But when I see the person doing it sure. and ablate that rhythm, that may cement it in a way that I couldn't have gotten otherwise. Good, good. That right. really is a great advantage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, if I can do a dual degree, or I can choose to concentrate in an area, right. like a right. major, right. and then end up having to produce a capstone That's right. study. So what's yeah. that? So it's about six, it's about six credits worth of, uh, of, of time. And so, you know, certainly we have about 50 in the MPH, about 20 or so in the MBA, plus the PhD and a few other degrees that you can do like genomic medicine or a JD. Mm -hmm. um, but about 120 or so of the 200 are going to be in these pathways. And so they spend uh, they spend a little bit of time in their first year, then that whole two month block in phase one, doing at least, um, doing a bunch of dedicated hours with their mentor, starting their project, working through a question, doing self directed mm -hmm. learning of asking a, asking a hypothesis, sure. trying sure. to work through how to create mm -hmm. a project, mm -hmm. give them a little bit of a break of it during phase mm -hmm. two because they have a lot on their plate with the clerkships, mm -hmm. and then coming back in phase three and doing um, another few credits worth of that research time, helping to answer your question, mm -hmm. producing a poster, ideally a manuscript, and then as as you mentioned, the spring of the fourth year a capstone fair where everyone can show like, this was sure. my thing. This is what I did um, to really try to advance science in my area. And you also had another cohort that may decide to follow the accelerated pathway and, yes. and start residency early. Right, that's a different okay. pathway. So mm -hmm. if you don't want to do a dual degree or pathway, this is another option to actually graduate in three years and be guaranteed a spot in one of our training programs. I, I think that's... Yeah. Yeah. And that's And for people that really like, I know what I want to do. Right. And I know that I want to mm -hmm. stay here to do it. And I can develop relationships with mm -hmm. the faculty here over the course of that time and then transition into the graduate program. Mm -hmm. It's a really nice opportunity for the right mm -hmm. for the right person, right? That's certainly mm -hmm. not for everybody. But for the people for whom that makes sense, it's a great opportunity to go directly into that area. Great, great. So until now we've been mm -hmm. talking about the design the concepts involved in this uh, great innovative curriculum. So tell me about the challenges to implementation that you encountered, mm. because you launched this right in the middle of COVID. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so there's a, obviously a couple of big challenges. I'll say pandemic aside, even before that happened, there's huge logistical challenges, right? You're mm -hmm. trying to change when things are delivered. You're changing an academic calendar. And with that, 
things that, that, you know, from a curricular side, I had to learn about what are the financial aid rules mm. and when does, when does tuition happen A versus B and how does it affect the semester? And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, we had to learn, learn how to, how to navigate all those waters. How do you get all the faculty, you mentioned mm-hmm. building, building a coalition and you get all these faculty on board um, to, to, to make all these changes. So I think a lot, and then finally, how do you implement this in a way that's so, somewhat cost neutral, right? I mean, obviously you have right. to make investments in big change, but you can't break the bank sure, in doing so. Sure. So how do you sufficiently value the role? And so one of the things that we're really proud of, you know, without using too many acronyms about ERVU mm-hmm. and FTE mm-hmm. and CFB and all these things right. about finances, mm-hmm. how could we appropriately, I mentioned one of the pillars was truly valuing education. That, do, that doesn't mean, oh, you should, you should run this course because you're mm-hmm. committed to the academic mission, mm-hmm. but still see the same amount of patience. So how could you value sure. the work that's being done in a way that's meaningfully respectful for the faculty, for their departments, but also for the clinical mission and the research missions that are equally important. So I think getting all those ducks in a row. Right, but, but somehow, mm-hmm. miraculously, you made it happen. And you had to go, instead of side, you know, in, in-person gatherings, you, know, you had Zoom. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then so this um, collaborative learning groups that still mm-hmm. worked yeah. out okay? So it was a challenge. You know, I, I, I say to people, you know, for, I remember very well those meetings in March when we're like, what is this thing? Is it really going to be a problem in the future? And should mm-hmm. we keep mm-hmm. students in the mm-hmm. bookshops or not? Mm-hmm. Back in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And when we realized it was what it was and that we were launching a curriculum that I mentioned, two important things. You get into clinical experiences really early and you're in interactive live small group sessions. And what are the two things that the pandemic didn't allow? Sure. Hospitals and clinics didn't have extra learners in there because of the restrictions due to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't really gather in small groups safely mm-hmm. in a way that we knew at the time. And so how can we take those two primary concepts that were so important and still make it work? Sure. Um, and so you mentioned things like learning more about Zoom and breakout rooms than I ever thought I would need to know yeah. um, in, a, in a couple short months. Um, how do we give them meaningful virtual clinical experiences that maybe aren't perfect, but can, can get it done until we're able to get them into live clinical experiences. So that huge challenge was also really, again, for me, it was amazing how we were able to rally the faculty to get on board with this, um, and, and, and buy into, even though with all those challenges, and by the way, our same faculty, many of us included who had to now suddenly do a bunch of extra coverage on the, in the hospital because of all that happened with with the pandemic. There there were a lot of challenges, but I I think there are also some things that the pandemic brought that were very positive in a sure. sense in, the, in terms of transforming educational models. Mm-hmm. So for example, telehealth, uh, we created a whole sure, telehealth sure. curriculum. We started sure. doing telehealth simulations. Right. We started doing those kinds right. of things. Right. We also, because of the limitations in our own clinical sites had to spread beyond our boundaries and we had to go to federally qualified health centers and other hospitals. And that actually helped us tremendously for the bulge year when mm-hmm. we had a lot of learners in the clinical environment. So we, we, we developed a lot more clinical partnerships in that year. Yeah. So there were some positives. So tell me about phase two of implementation and how that worked out. So that year that we began phase one in August of 2020, our clerkship directors were very busy completely upending their clerkships. So mm-hmm. even before NextGen launched for them, they had already refashioned their clerkships because of the sure. pandemic. So sure. it was very challenging for them to do that as well as prepare. But so I really give massive kudos to our faculty. And when, they, when we implemented phase two, um, I think the, that very first class, class of 24, they had a phase one that was very modified, as you heard, right? Sure. Mostly on Zoom, not sure. a lot of interaction, not a lot of anatomy. So it was difficult for them to transform you know, and adjust to the clinical environment, mm-hmm. but they, they came a long way. And we have been monitoring their outcomes this past year, and it's phenomenal. 
that class is doing incredibly well in terms of objective measurements of their clinical skills. Wow. And they're all studying for step one and step two right now. Okay. So okay. we will wait and see. Okay. So we have not noticed any deficiency in terms of their ability to absorb the material and to perform on the clerk. I think, yeah, in, I, I think, you know, of course, lab. this is an iter iterative process. And as we realized, so our first version of phase one, we made several changes to the second version and several changes. Of and course. we think we're mostly going to stay state now with phase one. Similarly, phase two, a couple of changes and hopefully in stay state soon. So, uh, but those iterative changes in mind, for example, what you heard during that year when we had simultaneously a group of the legacy students in the clerkships with the students that were a year younger than them or a year behind them, their scores on objective clinical exams mm -hmm. like an OSCE um, or their clinical performances on the clerkships, despite having that year of, mm -hmm. of difference, in many specialties was basically the same. And that was really um, reinforced to us that we can make this work despite the limitations, again, of that first class, not having the optimal delivery of phase one, um, given all the pandemic challenges. Great, great. Um, as you reflect on where we are right now and what you've learned, uh, how do you feel about uh, NextGenMD and where are we headed? I'm incredibly excited. I'm most excited right now. I don't feel like the job is done. <laughs> We've got a long road ahead still in phase terms of three phase three is coming is up. Coming up, right. So we every day that's our work, making sure that everything's prepared for our January launch, mm -hmm. making sure that our students right now that are in study mode are getting all the resources they need. Mm -hmm. A lot of check-ins, a lot of help from our mm -hmm. academic enrichment team. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and all of these dreams that we've had for the integrated science, everything that they'll actually launch and be successful. So we have a lot of planning yeah. still. To and I think it's a great confluence. You know, we're really excited about phase three. We're so I think we can safe to say we're both simultaneously nervous and ner nervous with confidence, but also excited about all the unknowns of phase yeah. three. But the interesting confluence is right as we're launching phase three, we're also finally getting back to so much more of a normal, like the fact that we're having this conversation mm -hmm. um, and that we're able to, to, that we're able to get together. The fact that when I go to the, when I go to the medical student, when I go to the med school building and it's buzzing again, because people are there, they're not all at home on zoom, right. but they're interacting again. So student sure. organizations are coming back together again and students are interacting in a more cohesive way again. So it's the perfect timing for that to happen right as we launch phase three. And I think for all of us, match day 2024, right? That's, that's when we're gonna see all the fruits of this labor yeah. and then and years beyond that as they, do, as, they, as they do so well in their residencies and beyond, creating transformational leaders right. uh, for many years to come, right? That, so our job is many years in, in the making, sure. but I think thus sure. far we're, um, we're confident with, uh, with how it's gonna work. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And one last question. Um, as you look at um, how we prepare our medical students uh, to become transformational leaders uh, who will shape the future of medicine, um, what's the role of competency-based medical education and trustable um, professional activities? What, how do you incorporate those in the formation and, and evaluation of the students? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that part because actually reflecting back before this new curriculum, one of the things that we had done when the when the new kind of EPAs, these Entrust Professional Activities, first came out from the AAMC, mm -hmm. um, we had started building a coalition of people that were looking at how can we create, mm -hmm. how can we embed the EPAs throughout our clerkships mm -hmm. and then eventually into the pre-clerkship time. This was in the legacy curriculum. And so we'd already kind of started that work of how important that was and how can we create a more competency-based, not time-based model. Understand there are certain restrictions of the way in which finances work in the GME, mm -hmm. um, graduate mm -hmm. medical education mm -hmm. era work. And so we'd already kind of done that. So when we started that process, so when we started launching this curriculum, it was a perfect kind of overlay. And so to your point, 
we, you know, this idea of curriculum mapping. So everything that we do is mapped. Exactly. So what is the, what is it mapped to in terms of our institutional educational objective? Mm -hmm. What is it mapped to in terms of the national standard of an entrustable professional activity? Mm -hmm. And then how do you meaningfully assess those? And we looked around how to meaningfully assess our clerkship students, for example. We wanted a much more 360 kind of approach than we than we currently had, and a more competency-based person we currently had, and we couldn't find a good model. What's the answer? Make our own. And so, you know, we we uh, we worked hard with some of our faculty that worked hard that, that did a lot of work on this to create our own clerkship evaluation form that actually was just um, accepted for publication, so the world can see it very soon. Okay. Um, and so we kind of leveraged the things that we knew were out there, and when we couldn't find the perfect solution of how to meld EPAs and these institutional objectives with how we teach, let's make our own and let everyone else learn from that and use it after us. This is something everybody's struggling with. You know, every medical school around the country is sorting out how do we measure these EPAs, mm -hmm. how many times we have to observe and in what context, mm -hmm. right? And so this form hopefully will unify at least the method of observation. So we're hoping that at least, you know, this is the biggest struggle for medical schools to have a unified way of looking at a student sure. across the spectrum. And if we're all nas nationally using a similar EPA-based right. competency form, how much better would it be for that UME to GME transition to say, we're all using this form, this is where they are in their competencies, and do that handover to the residency training program. And the other last piece is that our boot camp, at the very end of their medical education, mm -hmm. this is that course that helps them transition to becoming medical residents. Mm -hmm. We evaluate every single EPA in that course. Are they wow. able to do all of these wow. things that we say that they should be able to do? This is fantastic. What a beautiful place to end <laughs> with the Middle School of Medicine leading the way when it comes to medical innovation. Thanks to the two outstanding leaders that we have right here with us. Dr. Agrawal, Dr. Deshpande, what a pleasure to actually talk to you thank today. You. And what thank a privilege you. for me to catch you as part of the Dickinall leadership. So thank you so thank much you. for thank sharing you. with us the journey to Next Gen MD. <laughs>